Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we're joined by Francine Hirsch to talk about her forthcoming book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, available from Oxford University Press as of right now, 2020, presents a much-needed corrective to Anglo-American-dominated narratives of the trial. Drawing upon a wealth of secret archives open for a few years during Russia's liberalization, Hirsch makes a compelling argument that not only have authoritarian regimes made vital contributions to the cornerstones of international law, but to tell the story of Nuremberg without their involvement is to capture the moment while missing the story. I, for one, am convinced, but enough from me. We have Francine Hirsch with us here to take us through the finer points today. So without further ado, Fran, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ryan. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, we're happy to have you. To begin with, what brought you to the study of history? Well, my my interest is first in Russia and the Soviet Union, and this came really from growing up during the time of the Cold War, where Russia really loomed large in my imagination. Um, I was interested in in Russian literature and Russian culture, but I also um, had a fear, like many people did of my generation, I think, of the Soviet Union. Uh, I was at Cornell during the years of Gorbachev's perestroika and glasnost, um, and this it seemed to be a time of really exciting change in the Soviet Union. And I started studying government and Russian studies and began studying the Russian language and um, and decided afterwards to, to pursue a master's in Russian studies. And anyway, to make a long story short, um, as I was really just seeing the changes going on in the Soviet Union and looking at what was happening with Gorbachev and the way that history was being rewritten. And we were suddenly learning much more about the Soviet past, right? Um, and and all the lies that had been told and just, it, it, history became really fascinating to me. And I wanted to know more about Russian history because I thought it was critical to understand the past in order to make sense of the changes that were going on at the moment. And, um, you know, early on, I thought I had wanted to be a, a journalist. That was one of my, my, my big plan. And I had worked during the summers for my hometown newspaper, the Staten Island Advance. But as I began really focusing more on Russia, that was when my, my interest in history really began to grow. And I, I decided that I wanted to to know more, and um, and that's that's what took me to, to grad school for history at that point. Okay, so this takes us to the point where you're entering grad school. How do you come to write this book specifically? Well, you know, there's um, some some serendipity really in discovering the topic. Um, my first book was called Empire of Nations, and while doing the research for that first book, I you know quote unquote met two of the main characters for Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg, and they were the international lawyer Aaron Trainin and the filmmaker Roman Carmen. While working on the first book, I had learned that both of them had actually been in Nuremberg for the Nuremberg trials. Aaron Chayinen is an international lawyer who 
studied the concept of race and was interested in the later in the concept of genocide as well. Um, the filmmaker Roman Carmen um, had done all kinds of films early on about the nationalities of the Soviet Union. And then he was in Nuremberg filming the trial. They, they both end up factoring really big in this in the Soviet judgment at Nuremberg project. And my curiosity was sparked about that. At the same time, as I had discovered this, there were discussions about Nuremberg and transitional justice in, in constantly in the news, right? We had the 2002 trial of Slobodan Milosevic, the 2005 trial of Saddam Hussein. Lots of comparisons were being made between those trials and the Nuremberg trials. And honestly, I didn't know much at the time about the Soviet Union's role in the Nuremberg trials. That never came up in those discussions. Um, very little had been written about it, and I wanted to learn more. But it was really once I started just digging around a little bit and investigating the topic in the Moscow archives in the summer of 2005, that's when I became really excited about the topic and kind of became hooked. And that's what started to take the book in the direction that it would ultimately take. One of the first documents I stumbled upon was a seven-page report by a Soviet informant in Nuremberg talking about all the difficulties faced by the members of the Soviet delegation in Nuremberg, complaining about the shortage of Soviet translators and interpreters, about the terrible, terrible communication lines between Nuremberg and Moscow, about how female members of the delegation were getting made fun of by the Americans and their British for their shabby clothing, about how the Americans were showing their movies to a captive audience in Nuremberg and suggesting that the Soviets should do the same. I mean, I just, I love those kinds of documents because they really give you a sense of life on the ground and um, just make it just so much more like real, right? And those kinds of documents also require a lot of reading between the lines, right? So many questions were raised for me, right? Who was this informant, right? Who was he writing to? What was he trying to accomplish? Like, were there really problems with interpreters and, um, and translators? Who were these members of the Soviet delegation? So that just really opened things up for me. And yeah, and from that point on, I knew that I wanted to write about the trial and to look at these questions of international law, but that I also wanted to just kind of get in there right, as best I could to, to try to recreate the moment as well. Your sensitivity and your appreciation of these types of documents that, that give you the events in living color, as it were, definitely come across in the way that you write the narrative of these events. On that note, what is it that you want readers to take away from this book? Uh, so, so many things, really. Um, I mean, I guess, first of all, I, I really want readers to get the full story of the Nuremberg trials in all of its dimensions. Bringing the Soviets into the story, bringing in new materials from the former Soviet archives, it gave me the opportunity to really open things up, to, to open the story up, right, and, and to tell that story from a different perspective. And, and I think that with the Soviet peace in place, Nuremberg looks very, very different. And let me explain a little bit about that. Um, I grew up, and many people did, right, with the myth of the Nuremberg trials, you know, how it was captured on film and in popular accounts. It really focused on the American role in bringing the Nazis to justice, on American leadership, liberal values. And I, I want readers to walk away with a new understanding of the Nuremberg trials and with an appreciation, too, for how fraught things were in reality. Like, Nuremberg almost didn't happen. 
right? Four countries came together to make the trials happen. Four countries with different wartime experiences, with different ideas, very different ideas about the meaning of justice. There were endless negotiations. Compromises were made on all sides. Compromises that everyone at one point or another came to regret during the course of the trials. And personalities and relationships, they really matter. That's what I want readers to walk away with too, with a, a sense of that. What happened at private parties, all key to, to moving the trials forward. The other thing is, is that as a historian, I'm really fascinated by contradictions and by messiness, right? And that's something else that I hope that readers walk away with an appreciation of, just all the contradictions, all the messiness, and because um, it's so central to the story, um, to what really happened. Stalin's Soviet Union, as illiberal a state as you can get, played a key role in making the trials happen and made a major contribution to the post-war development of international law. And I think it's important to understand that piece and not to just brush over it. The four wartime allies, well, they were, of course, also post-war rivals, right? The trials were about trying the Nazis, but also about so much more. The trials were about the history of the war and writing that history, about the fate of post-war Europe. And as such, the trials, too, became an early front of the Cold War. The other thing is, is that Nuremberg has been held up as a foundational moment for human rights, right? And rightly so, right? It was, it absolutely was. But I hope that readers walk away with a truer picture of what that foundational moment was like and of all the different politics involved. Well, as we raise the curtain on January 1942, as you have already pointed out, the trial is not yet a certainty. What are the positions of the different actors at this point and how did the initial negotiations about post-war justice for the Nazis play out? Well, initially, and I think this is really important to understanding the whole story of the Nuremberg trials, it was the Soviets who were the ones who were out there calling for the convening of a special international tribunal to try the Nazis. And this was for a whole number of reasons. The Soviets were the ones who were really um, just seeing tremendous atrocities, right, in their country just at this point during the war, the devastation of entire communities, the devastation of agriculture, the devastation of industry. And it was in this moment um, in the Soviet Union, in, in the halls of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, in the back rooms of the legal institutes, there were all kinds of discussions about should they bring the Nazis to trial? Could they bring the Nazis to trial? And arguments were being made that the waging of aggressive war was indeed a crime and that they should be calling for justice and that they should be calling for a trial. And at that point, there was a lot of resistance to that idea of a trial. I mean, remember, we're in the middle of the war right now. The British and the Americans, they're worried about um, retaliation if they were to try Nazi war criminals and then what kind of retaliation would there be on the other end. And there was also just a lot of uncertainty about, like, is war a crime? Is there any legislation that makes war a crime, a punishable crime, right? What does that look like? The Soviets, they, they weren't concerned with that. They were fine going ahead and saying, yes, indeed, that, that, that war was a crime. They didn't have the same problems with ex post facto law, actually, as, um, as other countries um, had. And they thought that there should be um, a trial, a, a big public trial. 
And um, and so this if this there's early talk in 1942, but it's really over the course then of the next couple of years, over the course of the war, as as things go on, that these these conversations, these discussions continue, and it's 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 difficult, right? It's it's really difficult, and so there's all kinds of discussions that are taking place, like internationally at this moment too. Um, the United Nations War Crimes Commission, separate from what will be the United Nations later, um, has been established, and there are all kinds of debates again about is is war a crime? Um, what's a crime against humanity? Right? Are there charges that the Nazi leaders like can be brought to justice with? Right? And then gradually, gradually um, in the United States as well, the opinion on this begins to shift from a view that um, that no, there shouldn't be such a trial to a view that yeah, there there maybe there should be a trial, and um, and at that point um, there are discussions about uh, putting together putting together a, a charter and and discussions about what kind of a trial it should be right should there be um, should it be a military tribunal should it be a, a closed proceeding should it be an open proceeding who should be involved in the process and and again this is all taking place before the victory this is all highly theoretical at this point right it becomes less theoretical as time moves on and then it becomes more urgent but when these discussions start when these conversations start about post-war justice, this is still there. There aren't very many Nazi leaders, Nazi war criminals who are in um, who, who, who've been captured. And so so gradually um, towards the end of the war, that's when the decisions really have to be made about what's going to happen. How should it happen and what should it look like? That brings us to the issues around the framing of the charter itself, which you neatly encapsulate in the title of What is Justice? The Soviet jurisprudence here is quite interesting for how influential it is. What are the sticking points as the Allies are beginning to discuss what the Nuremberg trials will deal with and what it will not deal with? Here we have Yona Nikachenko and Aaron Trainin, right? There are these there are these two Soviet legal guys who are representing two very different aspects of the Soviet judicial system, right? That Nikachenko, he has his history is all about the Soviet purge trials. And so the fact that the Soviets are sending him to be part of these discussions and to be part of these negotiations, right, that's that shows you from the start what the Soviets think that this is going to be about. Like they're imagining something that is going to be much more similar to the Moscow trials of the 1930s, where um, they're they're imagining it's going to be open and shut because to them, right, it's really obvious that the Nazis have committed mass atrocities. The Nazis are guilty. The Nazi leaders are guilty. They should be hung. They they want to go through this process of a trial because they think it's important. They think it's necessary. They think it has educational value. They also want reparations. And this is a moment for them to, to make that claim for reparations on an international stage, right? That's part of what Nikachenko's job is to do, right? They send Aaron Trainin along with Nikachenko because Trainin is already fairly well known um, in certain circles, of course, um, in the West, among lawyers, among some politicians. 
because of his ideas about international law, which have circulated. So he, he wrote this book, The Criminal Responsibility of the Hitlerites. It originally was a report that he wrote for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, um, again, setting out a whole bunch of ideas about aggressive war, about um, how aggressive war is a criminal offense, a punishable criminal offense, and including under that, not just the, the waging of aggressive war, but the planning of aggressive war, propaganda, um, advocating for ag aggressive, or I guess ad um, instigating aggressive war, right? Ag agitating. Um, and so they send him as well, in part because he's known, in part because they know that he's um, well-respected and that he can talk the talk of um, of Western law because Trainin himself, he, uh, he was educated in Western law. He had spent time in Germany in the 1920s. He, um, he spoke many languages. He read widely. He, he was someone who was very international in terms of his understanding of the law and in terms of his education. And so they sent him along, but, and they sent him along in part because they know that he can also make these convincing arguments about how a trial should be shaped, right? And, and what should happen at the trial. So for me, the, they Nikachenko, Trienin, they arrive in London, right? They're exhausted. They're already kind of behind on things. And they've come with these very strict orders from Moscow, too, that they are not to make any kinds of decisions, right, without reporting back. And so they're immediately at a disadvantage because of this as well, because they're the, they constantly have to report back to Moscow, whereas other people who are at the table they're they're not under those kinds of like constrictions, and so um, so there they are at the table, and there are all kinds of discussions, all kinds of endless negotiations, negotiations about definitions, negotiations about um, what should be included in the charter, about how to define these crimes, um, about what is a crime against humanity. Um, in terms of a crime against civilians, about, again, war crimes themselves, what gets included as a war crime, and also, and this is where Trainin's role becomes really significant, about the criminality of aggressive war, which Trainin, of course, has been arguing for um, since like very early on, very, very early on. And, um, and so, you know, the discussion goes on and on, and there are different opinions on different sides, and there are a lot of concerns um, about state sovereignty, right, as well. The Americans are concerned about state sovereignty, um, about protecting state sovereignty, about, again, what would it mean for there to be um, for, for crimes against humanity to be introduced into international law, whereby the leader of a state could be punished for crimes against um, his own citizens, right? So for me, the story of chapter two, right, it's, it's in part about the difficulties that the Soviets are facing and that we see already from the start. And in part, it's also about what they're bringing to the table, like with these long and endless negotiations. And what the Soviets are concerned about, um, even as they're defining, right, aggressive war, what is, again, what is aggressive war? What are the parameters around this um, term? Can, how do you define aggression? Like, what does it mean to be an aggressor? Um, and of course, the, the thing to remember with all of this is that the Soviets are not completely innocent in all of this, right? They're victims, right? They're victors. But if we go back to, to 1939, if we go back to the, the joint invasion of Poland, 
right? If we go back to the secret protocols of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, there the Soviets have concerns about, um, you know, Moscow has concerns, Stalin has concerns, Molotov has concerns about, again, how should these terms be defined? And so uh, eventually they, they, they work it out so that a aggressive war, the charter itself ends up being framed in a way that just applies to the Nazis, right? To the Axis powers, I should say more broadly, but it's just the, the Nazis and Nazi allies who are going to be tried at Nuremberg and allied crimes of any kind, including the secret protocols, right? They're, they're not supposed to be talked about or, t- or touched upon in the trials. So aggressive war had been a term that had been uh, talked about, um, but Trainin had been the first to use this phrase, a crime against peace. And he had used it early on in some of his writings or a variation in that term on his writings in the 1930s. And then he used it in the book that became translated into English and French and other languages and widely circulated on the criminal responsibility of the Hitlerites. And then sort of as a concession to the Soviets um, for them having compromised on some other issues, including where the trials will take place, right, which is decided it will be in Nuremberg in the American zone, which is something that the Soviets initially opposed. Um, they kind of switch things around in the charter to throw in the term um, crimes against peace, taking out the term um, aggressive war. I mean, aggressive war is still in there, but the name of the crime becomes a crime against peace. Well, you've alluded to it, but for our listeners who may not be familiar, what are the issues surrounding both the non-aggression pact and the secret protocols? Right, right. Um, so, so in August 1939, um, the Soviets and the Nazis um, they sign um, a non-aggression pact, which, on the face of it, is a non-aggression pact, right? Um, but that has some secret protocols attached, and those secret protocols, basically, to sum it up, it's you know, in the event of um, of of war, um, that it basically divides up Eastern Europe and into Soviet and Nazi spheres of influence, quote unquote. And so what happens then in September when the Nazis invade Poland um, shortly afterwards, the, the Soviets, you know, quote, they invade, they don't say that they're invading, of course, but it's an invasion. They invade Poland as well, right, from, from, from the other side and you know, divide up Poland. Which you know clearly, if, if that's like clearly a crime against peace, according to Trainin's own definition. So that's something that they don't want to have um, come out into the open. It's, it's really an open secret um, for a, a long time during the trials, and it's pretty much an open secret even before the trials start. But they they still want to keep that out of public view. Hence the great interest in such a narrow framing on only crimes by Axis powers, leaving everyone else out of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the challenges presented by the top-heavy nature of Soviet bureaucracy really start coming out the closer we move to the trial. We get past the point where the charter's framed, deciding what the nature of, of the charge is going to be as a crime against peace, the inclusion of these ideas. But then the Soviets are in this scramble to try and make sure that they're ready for the indictment. What happened? So part of what happens after the London conference, the Soviets at that point, Stalin, right, at that point, 
they realize that yes, there will be a trial and they want to try to figure out how to have as much control over that process as possible, um, which is just an impossible situation, really. Um, and so the Soviet system itself, right, um, it's extremely centralized and they try to replicate centralized control. And so in those months, like kind of in August and September, Stalin puts together two secret commissions. One commission that will oversee the writing of the indictment from Moscow. This is a secret commission. Andrei Vyshinsky, who we'll need to talk more about, right? He's on that commission. Um, he's helping to oversee things from afar. There's another commission that's connected to the Politburo, which is the highest governing body of the party that is also overseeing things that includes lots of members of the secret police, as well as just all the various secret police apparatuses in the Soviet Union, as, as well as all the high legal institutions. So, you know, these are the leaders of the NKVD, um, the leader of the Ministry of Justice and the Supreme Court, like those kinds of institutions. And they're supposed to then, from Moscow, secretly help manage like what's going on. The other thing that Stalin does is, so it's initially thought that Nikachenko, right, who they had sent to London to help negotiate the charter, um, it was thought that he would end up being the prosecutor because the other representatives too, like Jackson is the one, Robert H. Jackson is the one who's negotiating for the Americans and he ends up being the U.S. prosecutor. So it has sort of been assumed that, um, by a lot of people that Nikachenko and the Soviets said initially that Nikachenko, in fact, would be the Soviet Union's chief prosecutor. But um, but then Stalin decides, no, no, that um, he has a different job, that Nikachenko should actually become one of the judges on the tribunal instead, um, which creates a whole nother big ruckus that we might want to talk about later. But um, but he appoints Rudenko, Roman Rudenko. Roman Rudenko, um, who was the procurator general of the Ukrainian Republic, the Ukrainian SSR. Um, Rudenko, um, who was himself a devoted party member, um, Roman Rudenko, who had overseen um, a whole series of show trials in Ukraine in the 1930s, Rudenko, who had more recently um, overseen um, some other show trials in Moscow of um, of members of the Polish underground state, which another just, again, big show trial. And so they send Rudenko along to to be involved in these negotiations and and as the new prosecutor and he arrives in London and he kind of arrives sort of late, right? These negotiations have already taken off. Things are already happening. Um, there's already all kinds of discussions and he's late to the game. And not only is he late to the game, but the Soviets also didn't really realize at first how many translators and interpreters they would need. Um, some of this wasn't fully their fault. It hadn't fully been spelled out. Okay, it's going to happen in Nuremberg. It had been assumed by them that the Americans would provide more of the translators. The Americans at first are actually trying to provide more translators, but there's just a, a shortage of um, translators who are available, who know all these languages, and everyone is really scrambling for just translators. And this becomes really important at this moment, too, because the other thing is people just don't realize how much evidence is going to come pouring in. There is so much evidence 
And that really is something that takes everyone by surprise. Just how many documents um, the Nazis had saved, right? How much evidence there was, how many archives there were that were now found and being turned over. Um, and so all of this evidence comes pouring in, um, most of it, right, in German. And the Soviets don't have the translators on the ground who can help with this. The Soviets also don't have um, adequate interpreters. And this too goes back to the issues of Stalinism. What we think about the so Stalin-Soviet Union in the 1930s, and we think about a period again of, of show trials, of deportations, of um, just the mass murder of Soviet citizens. And at that particular time as well, um, knowing German, speaking German, being an expert on Germany was dangerous, right? German speakers um, were, were, some of, were shot. And so the Soviets didn't have enough translators either who knew German or the ones they did, um, some of them were not seen as politically reliable. And so they couldn't pass muster with the NKVD to get permission to go abroad. And so, really, when Rudenko goes to London with his assistant, who will be the deputy chief prosecutor, Yuri Pokrovsky, um, they're at a tremendous disadvantage from the start. They haven't seen all the material. They don't have enough translators. They don't have enough interpreters. Everyone else is 10 steps ahead of them. And they're trying just at to catch up. And so what we see really from here on in, another big theme of the book for, for this, it's, it's, this book, it's about Nuremberg. It's about the trials. It's about international relations. It's about the Cold War. It's also about the Soviet Union and Stalinism. And it's about Stalinism in this particular moment at which the Soviets are out of necessity, trying to make this transition to be able to function like other states, right, to some degree on the international stage, but not having fully thought through what do you need to be able to do that, right? Not fully thought through what kind of personnel do you need and not having been able to train and prepare and send the personnel that you might need in order to to, to function really even. And Nikachenko and Rudenko, um, Rudenko, Nikachenko, who we'll see later on, and Pokrovsky, all of these members of the Soviet delegation, people who will become the, the prosecutors, the judges, they don't have experience with international organizations. They don't have experience with um, just the kinds of give and take and negotiation that it, it would take, right, to to make these kinds of things happen. And they're also under pressure to constantly report back to Moscow. And so what happens is documents circulate, there are discussions about various elements of the indictment, about the framing of the documents and so on. And first of all, they're not able to translate it into Russian. So Nikachenko, I mean, I'm sorry, Rudenko, who has replaced Nikachenko, Rudenko is at the table and um, Rudenko's at the table and he's seeing a document that he hasn't seen before. It's in English. He'll maybe have a little bit of time to get it translated, but his translators are not really up to the job. Some of these documents are really long, these 30-page documents. And so the translators are just doing like a sketch translation. But what's in these documents, it's so incredibly important because the indictment, it's not just a little, it's not just a little list of charges. The indictment is 
becomes a, it's a massive document that lays out a whole description of the history of the war. And this description of the history of the war, a description going back to the causes of the war, a discussion of the Munich Pact, a discussion of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, a discussion of the course of the war. So these are contentious political issues. And Rudenko is not able to go over this. And even if he did, the other thing is that Rudenko, Pokrovsky, these other members of the Soviet delegation, they don't even know the full history of the Soviet Union's relationship to Nazi Germany. Because again, the Soviet Union, it's a closed system. It's a closed society. And only people who are deemed to need such information, who have been cleared, again, by the NKVD, who are in certain circles, would know the truth about foreign policy. And so Rudenko is not fully told about the history, for example, of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And when he arrives in London, it's pretty clear that he doesn't know about the secret protocols, right? And that becomes an issue, too. And so... Um, so those are the some of the things that the Soviets are dealing with, um, and and as Nikachenko, I mean, as Rudenko rather, and Pokrovsky, as they're sending information back to Moscow, and again, they're not supposed to be doing this either. They're supposed to be making these decisions on their own about the indictment with some consultation, but instead, they're through secret channels. They're sending back entire documents, um, and. But, but there's, it's also slow because they're not able to get things translated in a timely manner. And by the time things then in Moscow even work their way up the chain of command from one secret commission to another secret commission, then to, to Foreign Minister Molotov and to other party members, and then eventually to Stalin. And so all of this, it just takes so much time and they're, they're racing against the clock. One of the things that the Soviets managed to get in, in the writing of the indictment, is they managed to get the Katyn massacre of Polish officers into the indictment as a Nazi crime, when that was, in fact, we now know conclusively was a crime that the Soviets themselves, right, had committed. And this is a really important moment during the writing of the indictment, because at that time, the British and the Americans had information that the Soviets were probably the ones who were guilty of the murder, right? Um, there was They had information at the time uh, during the war as well. But Jackson now, Robert H. Jackson, who's the U.S. chief prosecutor, and um, Sir David Maxwell Fife, who's the British deputy chief prosecutor, uh, but who ends up assuming the critical role of, of prosecutor for much of the trials, um, during the deliberations about the writing of the indictment, they pretty much suspect that the Soviets are the ones who are guilty, and they're very reluctant to include that in the indictment. And again, I, this is a really important moment because in order for the trials to happen at all, so many compromises had to be made on so many sides, including some that, you know, we look back in retrospect that, you know, how did they let that happen? So in order for things to move forward, they kind of look away on that, um, not realizing what a huge issue it's going to become during the trial itself. And so 
that's that is another one of those those key moments. And when there, everyone everyone is coming together for these deliberations about the writing of the indictments in in London. Um, again, the Soviets are they're at a huge disadvantage, right, for so many reasons. But uh, but but they're also incredibly stubborn in terms of what has to happen. And, you know, there really are a number of moments where it's not clear, right, if, if things are going to move forward or not move forward, if they're going to sign on or not. And at that moment, what what would what would it look like if they didn't? Um, and and so, again, that's that's one of the big compromises that gets made. So you've talked around this issue of how Jackson is framing a lot of the case and the, these issues that are being faced by the Soviets coming to the table in this way. Do you want to expand on that? Yeah. So Robert A. Jackson is um, I, it's, it's, it's one of the things about working on a book like this um, that for me has been really fun and interesting is just really getting a sense of the different characters involved, right? Reading, as a historian, I love reading diaries and personal papers. And um, so you know, the courtroom action is great. It's super exciting, right? But the behind the scenes of what people are thinking and feeling and um, and just their, their sense of things as they're unfolding, right? That's that is um, that's what I love the best. And um, and Jackson, uh, I have his his diaries, right? His unpublished diaries, which are an incredible source for just getting a sense of like what he's thinking um, early on in terms of kind of this moment in London and the putting together of the indictment. And so, so we know from his diaries, we know from letters that he is very uncomfortable. Um, with the Soviets playing a role as one of the countries of the prosecution. So, you know, we have there's four countries of the prosecution. Um, they're all supposed to be equal, right? So it's the United States, Britain, France, and the Soviet Union. And Jackson comes into this at the very beginning, really educating himself about the course of the war, about what's happened, about Nazi crimes. And it's in the course of gathering evidence about Nazi crimes. It's in the course of working with the OSS. It's in the course of working with other U.S. intelligence agencies. He's also um, in the course of, of traveling around, right, in, in in talking to people in Europe. He hears more and more about um how the Soviets are acting, how the Soviets are behaving in Europe after the war, how the Soviets are behaving in Poland, how the Soviets are behaving in Hungary, um, about the Soviet idea of like justice and, and what it looks like. And he's also um, has some reservations about working with the French as well, who had, of course, um, collaborated the Vichy regime, right, with, with the Nazis. And so Jackson come over the, the over the course of the summer before the trial starts really wants to maintain as much US control over it as possible in part because he just does not think that the Soviets and the French have um kind of moral credibility in part right and he also doesn't think that they necessarily have the same idea of justice that he does so 
what we see then as plans are being made, as the um, indictment is, is being put together, as discussions are happening about which country of the prosecution will present which of the charges like in the trial itself, we see Jackson um, really trying to expand the role of the United States and to have as much control over um, what he considers to be the most important elements of the case as possible. And everyone bristles, right, about this, and the, the British do as well. And it's, they, they, they all understand that this is what Jackson is up to. Um, and I think that's, you know, one of the, 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 kind of the myths of Nuremberg, right, of American leadership and liberal values. It's not totally untrue, right? Because um, Jackson really does play this role of, of trying to keep things, um, of, of trying to preserve the trial's um, legitimacy, right, all the way along. We talk about the messiness of the situation, right? And that that's what's so remarkable about it is that the trials would have simply been an execution were it not for the Soviets, but then they would have simply been show trials were it not for the Americans. So it, it's kind of an interesting balance that you end up drawing out of all of these events. Yeah, that each each side really has this part that it plays in, in making things happen. I mean, I really do think that had it not been for the Soviets and their insistence early on in the war um, that there should be a special international tribunal, right? Had it not been for Aaron Chayinen, and his idea of a crime against peace, which circulated in the international community during the war, had it not been for um, the job that the Soviets did as well, their, their extraordinary state commission in gathering evidence of Nazi atrocities throughout Eastern Europe, that it's it's hard to imagine that Nuremberg actually would have come together. And um, and yeah, and the messiness comes from the fact that that. That yeah, that it's clear that the Nazis were were guilty of these uh, like just unspeakable crimes, right? But the, the Soviets had things to hide um, as well, and so they end up being in a just, just walking this difficult line. I mean, you know, they're not the only ones, of course, who have things to hide, but but they have the most to hide. Well, circling to that very issue and, and also some of the problems that are coming from this top-heavy bureaucracy that is preventing the kind of improvisation the other powers and prosecutors are able to have when they're encountering the Nazis, what does the opening of the trial look like? The Soviets are there. Jackson has redivided the way that the indictment is going to be presented. How does it open? Yeah. So the about the opening of the trial that I find really interesting is that the Soviets are not all there for it, right? Um, the Soviets who are way behind constantly trying to catch up, trying to catch up. On the eve of the trial, they're trying to delay the opening, in part to have more time to prepare and, and to get ready, in part because there's um, so much last-minute back and forth about, like, within the Moscow bureaucracy, again, about the framing of the, the, of the, of the charges and, and so on. And so there's delay, delay, delay. And the Soviets then hold off on sending their chief prosecutor, Roman Rudenko, to Nuremberg. Um, they actually, it's, it's kind of this 
there, there are these moments of farce really throughout the book. Um, and one of the moments of farce is that um, they claim that Rudenko has malaria and that since he has malaria, he's not going to be able to be there for the opening of the trial. And they say this is a way to try to delay the opening. And um, the trials, after a lot of back and forth, they agree they, they will open on time on November 20th, but the state... Um, the British and the Americans and the French, everyone assures the Soviets that they'll have plenty of time because the way that things will open is that each country of the prosecution will take a turn presenting its part of the case, right? And so the Americans are going to go first, and then it'll be the British, and then the French, and then the Soviets. So if Rujenko is a little bit late, that's okay. And the Soviets um, get everyone else to to agree that there will be um, that, that they'll, they'll wait on all the important questions until they get there, that this will just be the beginning of the opening presentations. And so they've divided things up in such a way that Jackson will present on what becomes, in part because of his efforts, um, count number one, which is the count of um, conspiracy. And then count number two, um, crimes against peace, um, goes to the British. And that's the count that the Soviets had really wanted to present on, in part because they see this as the one that Aaron Trainin had contributed to the framing of. And because for the Soviets, um, this charge of aggressive war is the whole crux of the case. It's the most important thing. It's what the trial is about. And that's another thing to really think about. You know, in, the, in our memory of Nuremberg, we associate it with um, crimes against humanity, which was um, count number four and a very important count nonetheless. But that's um, crimes against humanity that for, for many of the actors, I mean, including Jackson, including the Soviets, it was crimes against peace. So that was key. And um, so the British are going to present on, um, on crimes against peace, which is related to the conspiracy charge because it's the conspiracy to wage aggressive war, right, in part. And then the French and the Soviets are going to, to split presenting on war crimes and um, and crimes against humanity, with the French taking it in Western Europe and the Soviets taking it in Eastern Europe. And so the Americans are going to go first, and Jackson goes first, and he gives this, that's what everyone reports as being a magnificent speech, and you can hear some of it, you can see some of it on YouTube, and it was indeed a magnificent speech. And the Soviets, in fact, who are there that day, because Rudenko's not there, but Pakorsky, his deputy is there, and other members of the Soviet delegation are, of course, there, and they write back and say what a magnificent speech this was. And um, and then the Americans, the Soviets think that Jackson will just present for a day or two, and then it'll be time for the, the British, and then the French, and then in their turn. But the Americans go on for weeks and weeks and weeks. And the Soviets are quite taken aback by that, um, because what had been decided was that they would that Jackson would present his speech, and then the assistant prosecutors would present all of the evidence um, or a significant part of the evidence to, to back up the major points he was making, and that ends up taking um, quite a long time. And part of why it does, and this gets to Jackson's efforts to really take control in some ways over the case, is that Jackson had argued that conspiracy needed to be in there, and that it needed to be count one, and that it was 
critical. And when he defined conspiracy initially, it was a conspiracy to wage aggressive war and commit war crimes and commit crimes against peace. And that then gave Jackson the ability to present on all of the crimes that were listed in the count. And he goes ahead and he does so. And the Americans go ahead and they do so and they present evidence that the Soviets thought they would be the ones presenting because this was evidence about crimes committed in the Soviet Union. And um, and so, so they, they really then, and when you read then the Soviet telegrams and the Soviet correspondence and the discussions of these secret committees, right, commissions back in Moscow, they, they really see this as Jackson trying to steal the show, right, as it is, trying to, to take control over the, the whole thing. And so everyone then is scrambling in Moscow to try to figure out what to do next. And then the Soviets start to try to put together more evidence, and eventually then the Americans will call a witness, and that becomes a big sensation, and then the Soviets start to think about maybe calling witnesses as well. So really, when the trial starts, the Soviets think it's going to be one thing, and then it's going to go one way, and that they will have their turn soon, and that the trials, they don't see it going on for more than a few months, right, at the most. They think, well, what could possibly... Um, and the other thing is, is in the Soviet understanding, another big compromise that was made early on, I should say, is that um, in terms of the indictment itself, right, the Soviets, um, in a Soviet trial, an indictment contains all of the evidence and not much of it then has to be presented in court. The Americans and the British, in part because of their legal system, they argued that evidence had to be presented in court. And so a compromise is reached that some evidence will be presented in court and some will be included in the indictment, but much more of it gets presented in court than the Soviets had anticipated. And that, that has all kinds of implications for how the trials will, um, will play out. So the Soviets learn from the impact that the American and French presentations make with their introduction of witnesses into the room. How do they bring their own witness testimony before the court? Yeah, so this is really important for the Soviet case and for what ultimately I think ends up being the most successful part of it in court. The Soviets had initially been reluctant about the idea of calling witnesses at all, um, in part because the Soviets, when they called witnesses in a domestic trial, those witnesses either read from a pre-prepared script or were so prepped on that pre-prepared script that everyone knew what to expect like in a show trial, in a big trial like that. And when it came to calling witnesses and sending them to Nuremberg, first of all, the idea of sending Soviet citizens or sending um German war prisoners, right, um, abroad, um, out of Soviet custody into the American zone was something they were really uncertain about doing. And um, the secret police, all the different levels of the NKVD, Smersh, right, they were all going to be involved in that process. And um, and then in terms of the process of selecting the Soviet witnesses, they they went through a process of gathering information um, from 
throughout the Soviet Union of potential witnesses. And in some cases, these were witnesses who had been interviewed earlier by the Extraordinary State Commission who had given testimony. In some cases, these were witnesses who had written accounts of their experiences, um, like the, the the poet um, Abraham of Sutskova was someone who was was brought in. They narrowed down the list. They fully screened these witnesses, and then right on the, the eve of when the witnesses would appear, they they sent them on their, their trip to Nuremberg again with um, lots of supervision from Moscow in the process. And the witness testimony, they really only fully committed to calling their witnesses after the French committed, after the French presented their case, because the French witness testimony was seen as being so incredibly powerful at really putting a human face on the experience of how people had suffered under Nazi occupation that the Soviets felt it was critical then for the world to, to really hear the story um, firsthand. Well, especially considering the experiences that they're having with some of their American compatriots in, uh, well, not compatriots, American colleagues in the press camp, uh, there, there is a real disconnect there that the, the witness testimony manages to bridge. It really does. Um, and, and that's the, the thing that the Soviet correspondents, um, the Soviet journalists, again, this was another favorite um, source of mine were the, these wonderful letters and, um, and, and diaries of, of people like the Vyshnevsky and Roman Carmen, Soviet writers and the, the famous Soviet filmmaker who were there. Um, and writing home, this is a theme that they return to over and over again, that nobody seemed to understand the suffering of, of the Soviet Union in the war. Now, so some 27, Soviet, uh, 27 million Soviet um, citizens died during the war. Like, that's just an astounding number. The devastation that was done to the Soviet Union um, and was just, um, again, it's hard to get one's mind around. And, you know, they would talk about, again, how the Americans, it was all very casual. People were, you know, chewing gum in the courtroom and how the British people just wanted to talk about soccer matches and, um, and the Soviets were, you know, amused by, interested in, and appalled, right? The letters are really interesting by the nightlife in Nuremberg as well. And, um, and so again, there's just uh, there's a disconnect for them, that for the Soviet journalists and the other members of the Soviet delegation who had just seen so much, right? They had seen the liberated camps, they had been on the front lines, um, and then they had seen their country destroyed. They had lost so many relatives and and friends and. Um, and, and there's a sense that people just don't, don't understand, that people just don't understand what the Soviet Union has experienced. And so, so having witnesses, having people tell their story, um, that's, that's an incredibly powerful moment in the trials. Who do they introduce that's so important? Um, one of the most important witnesses is uh, the Yiddish poet, um, Abraham um, Sutskever. And He's important for a whole number of reasons, and one of the things that um, 
that in part because he's Jewish and in part because he's going to tell, he does tell a, a story, a very, very personal story about um, what happens to Soviet Jews under Nazi occupation and what happens to his own family. Um, his, his son is, is, his infant son is murdered. And, um, and this becomes important too, because in some early Soviet, trials that were held in the Soviet Union, the Kharkov trial, for example, the Soviets didn't talk as much about the massacre of the Jews or the extermination of the Jews, right, under the Nazis. They really focused on the suffering of the Soviet people, and they talked about crimes committed against Jews, but crimes committed against all other peoples as well. And um, and Sitchkever's testimony that really talked about his personal experience and the personal ex and the experiences of other Soviet Jews under Nazi occupation. This became a moment of just really talking about the suffering of the Jews and the suffering of the Soviet people, kind of at the same time of of having those categories kind of come together. And it was. Um, it was one of the. It was. I mean, people remember that moment. They they look back at his testimony as being um, just the most harrowing part of his testimony was recounting the murder of his newborn son. Right, an order had been issued in the ghetto forbidding Jewish women to bear children. Around that time, his wife, his wife gave birth to a boy in a ghetto hospital. And he tells about how Jewish doctors hid the baby and other newborns in one of the rooms, but German soldiers um, heard their cries and, and burst in. And um, how his, his wife then um, saw his son being murdered. Um, so that's... That's that's part of 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 his testimony. Um, I mean, really, it's it's so. Um, yeah, there, there there are others too who talk about again Germans coming into their their villages and just rounding up innocent people in in the countryside and declaring them to be partisans and and just forcing them into huts and houses and setting the houses on fire. The religious testimony, right? It, it is. It's. 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 Hard, it's. I guess what I would say about that is um, that that was one of the. Sometimes it's easier for me to talk about the, the the people in the book and the process too, right? And the the and right working on the witness testimony and writing those chapters that dealt with the Soviet witness testimony or the the chapter that dealt with the French testimony and that then dealt with the Soviet witness testimony. That was the hardest part of the book for me to write. And it's still hard for me to think about it now because um, reading account after account of atrocities and then trying to figure out what I needed to include in the book in order for a reader to really have a sense of what the Soviet people had endured, right, without being overly sensationalistic, um, that was a really, really hard line to walk. And... Um, and it, it took me a long time to write those sections. And while working on it, I was having nightmares every night, honestly, because again, it's, you know, how do you, how do you convey the suffering of a people? Right. And that's of course what the Soviets themselves were trying to 
figure out as they were selecting witnesses, right? One of the witnesses, a, a peasant from a village who was, you know, party approved, right? That he was someone who they felt that they could trust to send. And so he's, he gives testimony again about the, the Nazis coming in and rounding up the people there and then burning down houses of people. And, and, and again, it's just these horrifying images and the Soviet film footage, again, it's horrifying images of, of corpses and destruction and, um, you know, and one can talk about it in general terms like this and it still feels horrible, right? Um, but the, the accounts themselves, the extraordinary state commission accounts, the pages and pages of um, the affidavits. So I'm not talking even about what they said in court, which was pre-rehearsed, but I'm talking about um, they were interviewed at length. Sutskever, um was interviewed at length and gave a very long deposition about what he had experienced and what he had suffered before then the testimony itself was kind of pre-prepared. Um, and that's those are very, very hard sources to work with. I can I can totally appreciate that. I mean, I I've transcribed and read word for word 308 Gestapo files oh. at this point and like I mean, I'm dealing with um most of the cases being dismissed with a warning, right? Like 60 to 70% of them because, you know, you're a good Volksgenosse and you know, slap on the wrist go home, but you're still there's so much like the the stories of betrayal when you're dealing with like that over and over and over and over and over again it definitely it can uh, it, it affects you <laughs> like, yeah, it, 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 yeah it does right it, it really does um right and and again and knowing that then someone like like Sutskever or these other witnesses like what they had experienced like a, you know, another witness was um, a prisoner of war who had um, then been forced to work in a, like a quote unquote like hospital in various camps, um, but just again, it's what he describes as not being able to do anything to save people. Right? He's just describing all the ways in which um, people are left to die, like horrible, horrible deaths. So mm-hmm. it's um, it's. Yeah, I, I'm sure, and and those are powerful courtroom scenes, right? Because um, what you get is again is just a, a description of um, it's not just what happens in the courtroom; it's what happens afterwards. It's what happens in the bar rooms afterwards. It's the just a, a kind of an acknowledgement among the Americans and the British and other people who are there that um, of, of what the Soviets have gone through in a way that I don't think they fully understood before, right? That that's that kind of testimony is, it's hearing from people firsthand is um, it just is incredibly powerful. Mm-hmm. Re- what becomes remarkable is the way that the defense manages to completely well, nearly completely sweep that off of the table as they begin to present their case. Uh, this coincides with heightened Cold War tensions, focusing on the conspiracy count and, and really questioning the IMT's mandate. How does this play out as the major perpetrators in Goering, Hess, and Ribbentrop take to the witness stand? Yeah, this is, you know, you just feel the 
pain of the Soviets, or I did, at kind of at this moment where they've just finished giving their testimony and um, and they feel that the trial is is actually going for the first time in a while, like fairly like well for them in the sense of that they feel like they've been heard, right? And then. You know, Churchill gives his speech, the speech that becomes known as the Iron Curtain speech, um, and then the the defendants are, there's this image of them reading the newspapers, right, the next day in the courtroom with their lawyers holding them up so that they can read it, and um, and just the defendants are grinning, they're excited, they're happy, they see the Cold War coming into the courtroom, and they see the tensions between the Soviets and the other countries of the prosecution. And then when the defendants start to take the stand and just are allowed to go on, right, for hours and days in some cases, um, talking about defending themselves and in the process of defending themselves, alluding to or outright um, speaking of like uh, the crimes of the allied powers, right, not just the Soviets, but everyone involved, um, the, the case really changes. Everything really shifts. And to understand the defense case um, from the Soviet perspective, it's the Soviets hadn't fully understood at the beginning that the defendants would be allowed to take the stand in the way that they were allowed to take the stand. They hadn't fully understood that the defendants would be allowed to call witnesses, and certainly not as many witnesses as they were allowed to call. They hadn't understood that the defendants would be allowed to go on and on and on disputing evidence, um, challenging the charges, and that the judges wouldn't stop, wouldn't step in and put a stop to it. Um, you know, the judges, of course, there's there are four main judges, one from each country of the prosecution. Um, Nikitchenko is the, the main Soviet judge. And um, Nikitchenko is in a position, he just, you know, he tries, he wants to put a stop to some of this, right? He does what he can, but he just gets voted down again and again and again. The, the ju other judges, um, the British and um, American judges in particular, um, Biddle, the American judge, and Lawrence, the British judge, they're really determined to, to let the Nazis have their say, in part because they they don't want there to ever be a question later that the Nazis were, the Nazi leaders were unable to launch a full defense, right? They see their ability as launching a full defense as key to the legitimacy of the trials. But for the Soviets, um, this is just something that's um, really hard for them to even understand why this is happening. And then um, they feel powerless when they're unable to stop it. Well, this sensitivity to accusations of victor's justice as you say creates this great degree of leniency with the witnesses more than may otherwise have been the case but this actually ends up highlighting the inexperience of the soviets on the cross uh, and as you call it the give and take of an open trial um as i was reading you there's two things really going on here the first is the disconnect between the judges and the prosecutors on the one hand and then the limits that are imposed on improvisation by the Soviet bureaucracy on the other. Uh, 
this com- really comes out when we're talking about uh, the the secret protocols for the non-aggression pact on the one hand and catch-in on the other. I mean, when people talk about the Nuremberg trials in the popular books about the Nuremberg trials, right, we get a lot more, I think, about the prosecution case than we get about the defense case, right? There's some about the defense case, of course, but not necessarily about like all the ins and outs of the defense case. And to the Soviets, this the defense case, it was, it was their, their downfall moment in, in the trial in, in many respects. Um, and it's true that it was for them, there were, there were two main things that the, the secret commissions in Moscow and Stalin and Molotov and Andrei Vyshinsky, right, and everyone else wanted to keep out of the courtroom. Um, one of those things was the, the secret protocols to the, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, um, because um, again, um, this was, uh, I mean, they must have understood right, that this fit the definition of a crime against peace. They didn't want this talked about. And the other thing um, was um, the Katyn massacre. It wasn't that they wanted to keep it out of the courtroom. They just wanted this squarely blamed on the Nazis. And they saw this as the moment to do so. And they didn't think that um, the defendants and the defendant's witnesses would be allowed to directly contest um, evidence on this, quote-unquote evidence that the Soviets had put in because it had been agreed at the start that evidence presented by an official war crimes commission um, would just be accepted. And so the Soviets had their official war crimes commission. They had a couple of them, right? And they presented this evidence and um, and they, they expected it to stand. And so it was very surprising to them when the judges allowed said that yes there could be defense witnesses that could come and could you know dispute the soviet charges when it comes down to the actual confrontation over specifically katyn how how is that handled by the soviets in the open courtroom so this is one of them when we think about katyn it's a really sensitive moment to, to think about in terms of the trial um, and it's something that people have been, it's been talked about, but I guess that the, the reason in which it's, sens- one of the reasons in which it's sensitive is because this is one of the areas in which we know decisively, and there are some other areas in which we have some evidence, but I didn't talk as much about it in the book because um, it's, there's not, it's not as decisive. In the case of Katyn, we know that the Soviets um, fabricated evidence, right? And so it kind of becomes this moment now of the Soviets have fabricated evidence. Um, they had fabricated the evidence like quite a while ago, um, in, before even before they brought like Western journalists to to see the grave site, and they've then fabricated evidence to kind of get it ready for the court. Again, there's a sense that the Soviets were probably guilty of the crime. Some people probably had more evidence than others that the Soviets were probably guilty of the crime. Right? Katyn gets included in the indictment. Jackson like regrets that like continually. Um, Maxwell Fife regrets that too. And then there's this moment where they're they're going to have witnesses on each side, and everyone's really holding their breath because um, like what is it going to mean then for the legitimacy of the trials? Like what should like what is supposed to happen right at that moment in the courtroom um the nazi witnesses 
present evidence. I should say the defense witnesses, I should say, present evidence. Um, the Soviets present um, counter evidence, um, again, some of which has been fabricated, some of which is just based on hearsay. And at the end, the whole thing, it's sort of declared to be a wash, right? It's declared that um, that it's it's uncertain. It's uncertain, right? The, the press, which is really part of key for the public relations part of the story, um, talks about um, how the, the Soviet, the, you know, the Soviet evidence was convincing, right, in some cases. In some cases, some newspapers talk about how the defense evidence was convincing. And in the end, the Katyn charge just sort of disappears from the judgment. And that's the way that it's handled and dealt with. But it, it lingers, right? Katyn is one of those moments that um, for the Soviets, it, it, it lingers. And they understood that they have been um, taken to task for this, but yet at the same time, they haven't been, right? Because they're not being charged with the crime. But there's enough talk that they understand that um, that in, in some ways, quietly at least, um, they they have been with Katyn, with the um, with the secret protocols, with these revelations, right? I mean, I think a lot about this. Like, what does it mean that that these that the, these things were kind of revealed in the Nuremberg courtroom and one of the reasons I think about it is that the Soviet state continued to, like, it would, it would go through phases, right? And even now, there are phases with the Soviets, kind of, like, and the, with the Russians, rather, like, acknowledging that, that yes, this happened, and then saying, like, no, this didn't happen, or no, we can't talk about anything having to do with this subject, right? So, and, you know, on the one hand, we have this child, we have these, these really important moments, I think, where, um, evidence suggesting that maybe the Soviets were guilty of Katyn, right, that's as far as it gets, um, is presented in the trial. And evidence about the secret protocols, right, um, you know, that the Soviets and the Nazis had planned for the division of Eastern Europe and for carving out Poland, right, that's presented in the trial. And so it's, these are the moments in the trial at which the Soviets understand that in international court and international law, that these are things that can be used against them. They had gone into this trial expecting something that, while not quite like a Soviet show trial, would be similar in the sense that they had expected that it would be used just to tell the story of the Allied powers, right? And so the big concern that they have initially is this discussion among the Allied powers about what happened during the war, right? How are they going to frame it? What gets emphasized? What are the moments on the eve of the war that get emphasized, right? What are the moments during the war that get emphasized? Whose suffering gets emphasized, right? But as you move into the defense case, what becomes totally clear to them is that they they can't control the narrative of the war, and it's not just in terms of who's going to tell what in terms of the countries of the prosecution, but that the defendants are allowed to speak. The former Nazi leaders are allowed to speak. Ribbentrop, who was a co-signer of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, is allowed to speak and is allowed to talk about um, Soviet 
complicity, Soviet guilt, right? Soviet collaboration with the Nazis. All of that comes out in open court. Witnesses are called for Katyn, and it is suggested, right, that the Soviets maybe are the ones who are guilty for the crime. That happens in open court. These are, for the Soviets, these are like terrible moments, right, at the point in the trial. And then the fact that the international press talks about them um, is further, I mean, people in Moscow, Stalin, Molotov, right, this, everyone's up in arms about this, about how could this happen, that, you know, the Soviets, like, you know, they, they talk about they're, they're the victors, they've gone there to, to bring the Nazis to justice, this isn't supposed to happen. And yet, all of this has happened. And yet, when I think about it, kind of looking at what happens after all of this, um, one of the things that's still remarkable to me is that, you know, the Soviets didn't officially admit to the secret protocols until, you know, like, well after, like in the Gorbachev era. And they have these moments still of kind of denial about um about Katyn or not outright denial, then people aren't allowed to quote unquote like you know to talk about these kinds of things. Um, so I just we're always going back and kind of re-exploring these moments that we think were settled. So the Soviets are exiting the IMT with, in some cases, doubts about whether or not this was a wise choice to even begin with. And on the other hand, a renewed determination to shape the emerging order of international institutions. The Nuremberg moment has passed, for better and worse. You trace these developments through both the International Congress of Jurists and the newly minted United Nations General Assembly. What are the areas of contention in attempting to codify what had come out of the considerations and conventions that had been established at Nuremberg? Yeah. So as we've talked about earlier, one of the main debates that happens during the course of the trial, right, in the writing of the, the charges and the indictment, and this is a debate that happens again in the course of the judgment as well, is how to define these terms, right? How to define and what should the limitations be, right? Is a crime against humanity something that happens during the course of a war, or can, would a crime against humanity, in legal terms, of course, I'm talking about now, but a crime against humanity, um, could there be a crime against humanity that, uh, could that term be used against a state that commits a crimes against its own citizens, or against leaders that commit crimes against their own citizens? And what kind of court could there be to actually enforce that, right? The Nuremberg trials, the IMT was created during a really special set of circumstances, right? At the end of the war, Nazi Germany um, was under Allied occupation, and um, and the crimes of the Nazis were just so uh, abhorrent, and there was just such widespread agreement, um, even, even among the disagreement, right? There was widespread agreement that something had to be done, right? And so... So that was that particular moment. And even at that particular moment, there were all kinds of questions about how to set the terms and how to define things. Afterwards, there's um, a lot of nervousness, right, on all parts about, um, again, if you have these principles, if you have, if you all agree that aggressive war is a crime or a crime against peace, that there is such a thing, then what is aggressive war? 
um, is a war of, you know, a revolutionary insurrection, right? Is that aggressive war? Uh, what about a civil war? Um, how do you decide, you know, what aggressive war is? And all the parties are concerned about that and about what the implications of that would be for their own states. There are also questions that go along with this about, about human rights that come out of this as well at the Congress of Jurists and then in the United Nations, right? This is the moment at which um, there are discussions about the term genocide. There are discussions about just all, all kinds of guarantees uh, of rights to try to, you know, learn from the lessons of the past and um, just make the world a better place, quite simply. Um, and yet, you know, what is a human right? You know, the Soviets want there to be an inclusion of social rights. Um, what are individual rights? Um, when talking about genocide, that becomes contentious too. Um, Raphael Lemkin's original definition um, included things like cultural genocide, right? Um, original definitions that were talked about included the destruction of political groups, right? Not just religious groups or ethnic groups. And what would it mean then to include political groups? So the Soviets had objections to that, for example. So all of the countries involved had concerns and wanted to push things in one direction or in another direction. Um, and of course, all of this is taking place against the backdrop of the Cold War. Um, the Cold War, which we see sweep into the Nuremberg courtroom in March of 1946 with Churchill's speech and, you know, never leaves, right? So, um, there, there are questions, there are real political questions going on about the shape of Eastern Europe, about state sovereignty, 1948, Czechoslovakia, um, questions about the Soviets installing puppet governments in Hungary, about the fate of Poland. And so then, you know, what does it mean to talk about human rights, right? Who gets human rights? Um, who gets sovereignty? Um, so, so all of these things, and in that environment, um, it becomes extremely contentious. Well, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you on today to take us through this. Not enough time, but before we do go, what is it that you're looking at next after going through all of this time familiarizing yourself with international law? Yeah, so I, I'm thinking for my next project of um, I really want to write an entangled history of American and Russian relations. And so so part of the, the Nuremberg piece that I kind of take with me as I move forward is um, thinking about that um, American-Soviet, American-Russian relationship. And um, I'm interested in further exploring that in, in terms of, of law, but in other areas too, including economics. So um, yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to travel again and getting back into the archives. Well, we look forward to your future work. And uh, if, if you get it out within a decade, hopefully I'll still be here to have you back on. Uh, so thank you. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me today. It's, it's really been fun. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in History. Once again, we've been talking to Francine Hirsch about her new book, Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg. A New History of the International Military Tribunal After World War II. Soviet Judgment at Nuremberg is available from Oxford University Press as of June 2020, 
and sure to be of interest to anyone looking for a narrative of the trials. As you heard in the interview, Fran has a real eye for documents that are capturing this human element of everything that's going on behind the scenes. And uh, her overarching arguments are also quite convincing to my mind. She really does manage to show what a key role the Soviets played in establishing international law and laying the foundations of human rights, uh, oftentimes against their own intentions. So it, it is quite a thought-provoking read. With that, though, I would like to thank you for joining us and hope to see you next time. Until then.